Um, it's so lovely to see you, Natalie. I, I, I just have to say that we meet and talk about women in the ancient world quite a bit. We and do. sometimes, depending on the mood we're in, sometimes we start and talk about the sustained, shocking, systematic misogyny there is from the beginning of the story of the world onwards in you know the written record. And then sometimes we're a bit more positive and we talk about actually women haven't been quite as written out of history um, as we might seem and that they are there if we know where to look. So what mood are you in tonight, Natalie? How do you- I'm feeling you quite perky. A perky. I'm in a perky mood, yeah, I am. I think I'm in a perky mood, that's what's happened. It's just because I'm always happy to see you, that is the truth. Um, Oh, Even in your bizarre old people's home chair. I should say that <laughs> Bethany is not at home before it sounds like I'm slagging off her decor. <laughs> this is not her personal chair. It's a it is. chair. It's true. <laughs> I should perhaps explain, you know, indeed, the sort of semi-tartan curtains, whichever way they are, that um, uh, are decorating my space. So I'm sitting in a, a small hotel room in Gibraltar, which, uh, and the reason I'm here, interestingly, so let's be positive then. The reason I'm here is because even though, like it or not, women occupy 50% of the human story genetically, I, as a historian, I noticed that we only occupy about 0.5% of uh, official written record and human history. But my God, we are there. So the reason I'm in Gibraltar is I'm studying the incredible skull of Gibraltar woman who was actually the first Neanderthal discovered. So we shouldn't be talking about Neanderthals. We should be talking about the, the Gibraltar females when, when, you know, when we talk about that incredible, uh, uh, incredible kind of human experience. So where, so Natalie, for you, because you've written this book and it is a brilliant book and I'm not just saying that because I love you. It's the most fantastic read. It is both kind of funny and shocking and mind opening and, and relevant uh, pretty much in every paragraph. But where do you go to when you're trying to find evidence of women whose voices you think have been misrepresented or silenced? What, what, kind of, what is your primary source? For me, it's often archaeology. Where, where yeah, are you I'm going? I'm much later than you because you know that um, prehistory especially is just not my specialist area. And that's, you know, it, it's all right. They've got you to defend them. <laughs> <laughs> They've got that covered. All around. So yeah, I'm almost always going back to text. To um, I, There is a lot more art and sculpture, ancient and um, I was going to say modern, but often by modern, what I mean is the last 500 years um, in Pandora's jar. Um, but th there is, there's more art than I've ever written about, for sure. But I still am most likely to be drawn back to, in this instance, Euripides, Hesiod, Homer, Pseudo-Apollodorus, essentially the... Um, storytellers and mythographers of the past because it's a it's a mistake to think that we're the first lot of people um, to start going wait a minute what's happening in this story the ancients were doing it too we're asking mm. questions about how myth is told and retold and how which bits of the story are prioritized I remember almost you know kind of stopping in my tracks when I found a moment in um, Plutarch I think where he you know is talking about the story of Theseus and Phaedra and he says, you know, Theseus actually has a, he says, you know, Theseus's marriages had quite bad beginnings and not very happy endings. It's just a tremendously litotic phrase to describe the number of women that Theseus manages to deliberately or accidentally kill over their relationships with him. He's a very dangerous man to marry or... Yeah. Anyway. Or, or rape, including Helen as a kind of between eight and 11 year old in some versions of the myth. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know that something is difficult when ancient authors are squeamish about it. So in some versions of the story where Theseus captures Helen, she is seven years old. 
seven yeah. and in some versions um she's a little bit older and they sort of round up to 10 and you're like dude <laughs> that literally hasn't improved <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just yeah. Since, you were, since you thought so, yeah. Um, in some versions of that story, you know, she's pregnant by the time her brothers get her back, by the time the dear story yeah. reclaim her. And Theseus is assuredly in his 50s by this point, if we follow the timeline of his story. So he is grim as in terms of his relationships with, with women. And she certainly, Pausanias just lists these, these women that um, Theseus has either raped or killed or both. He's killed their parents, or, you know, or killed their fathers. It, and, and then he says, but this story isn't much talked about because, you know, it's not told in, in any form. So we focus on the, the bit of the story that, that gets performed, which is the story of Phaedra that we get in Euripides Hippolytus, or we might see it in Racine's Phaedra or uh, whichever version we get. But, you know, if Plutarch knew that the story which gets the focus is, is the story that we, we then give more prominence to, and that in the case of Phaedra is a woman being bad, um, mm. then, then we should definitely know that. <laughs> Plutarch can work it out. We definitely mm. should know it. Um, so I, I think I do often go back to these texts in a way just because you get to then look at what happens to, to how ancient writers, you know, deconstruct these stories. And sometimes, you know, there are, like, I know Helen is your special interest because you wrote such a brilliant biography on her, but there's, there's that incredible fragment in Sophocles of um, the demand for Helen's return where mm. Helen is shown, and it feels like it must have been written 20 minutes ago, Helen is shown self-harming. She is, she's physically yeah. disfiguring her face by, um, by drawing writing implements down it. And it's like, mm. the, sorry, the, the world's most beautiful woman is disfiguring the thing that makes her famous by using the implements that male writers and artists have used to celebrate it. Like, mm. I'm sorry, I don't think I have any space for any more postmodern than this. No. Incredible. And that's fifth century BC, two and a half thousand years old. Yeah, completely. And even if you go back to Homer uh, composing whenever, you know, 2,700 years ago or thereabouts, there's that incredible line about Helen where she says, you know, on us has been sent a terrible destiny that we should be a singer's theme for generations to come. So she's absolutely prefiguring the the notion of 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 the horror actually of of a celebrity culture when feme i mean you know you know it's one of our favorite words that the the word feme in ancient greek becomes pharma in latin which gives us our word fame so this notion that if you are famous or if you seek fame you are seeking slander rumor and gossip and helen absolutely gets that through you know or homer allows her to have that 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 idea 2700 years ago so you are right there is an extraordinary there's a kind of modernity and freshness to the thinking in a lot of those texts and that's something that pandora's jar does so brilliantly because you take what we think we know and you just dive that bit deeper to ask what was hoped to be meant by what was said and you know Pandora uh, we can talk about her for a full hour if you like <laughs> she's your specialist subject but the fact that you know for, for people who might not have read their their Hesiod that recently that she's often um, described not given a name but described as the Calon Cacon the yes. beautiful thing and I have to say you know for years I've got on platforms and said this is appalling. It's it's Hesiod saying that women are beautiful because they're evil and evil because they're beautiful. But you have a you you have a slightly different reading of that phrase. I do because I think that's that's us translating it that way. Those two words are parallel in Greek. They are both visual, physical, beautiful, ugly, kalon, kakon, 
and also they can be moral um, mm. or, um, or in a way like amoral but descriptive of, of a non-visual quality. So kalos can mean something beautiful, it can mean something finely made, something good, someone morally good, um, and kakos means the exact opposite, something ugly or badly made, something shoddy or morally deficient, i.e. evil. And what mm. happens when we get that phrase, it, I think, is that we should translate it like the Greek it, it, to give them both an equal balance. So it should be like beautiful, ugly, like the French jolly led. And mm. yet we always see it translated as visually beautiful, but morally bad. And mm. that, this is my t-shirt for this book. <laughs> that's not in the Greek. <laughs> so it's like, well, sure, Hesiod is, uh, you know, he is not the biggest fan of women in general. Things that Hesiod doesn't like, women, he finds them inferior morally to bees and brothers, he finds them inferior morally to himself. Um, and so the story of Pandora in particular is an absolute payday for him because um, he gets to say this beautiful woman who is evil um, is, is then sent to be the wife to a stupid brother who I don't like, who the stupid brother Epimetheus, of, of brother of Prometheus. So this is a, a massive double bonus for him. But I think it's really important that we at least take a moment. You know, Hesiod surely does not mean, given that the gods have created, Hephaestus has created, and uh, you know, Athene has helped to, to give skills to, and the hours and the seasons have helped to decorate her clothes and everything. We're surely meant to think that Pandora is beauty. You know, that she is this beautiful figure. We're told that she is a an evil in whom mortal men will delight. So we are definitely meant to think of her as, as being beautiful, but are we meant to think of her as being morally reprehensible? Is she a femme fatale? Well, yeah, maybe, but maybe also, no. Maybe also she is this thing which is both beautiful and ugly. She's an agent of change. And that's the important thing. Zeus wants to shake things up. You know, something has happened which shakes up the world which he doesn't want to have happened, namely Prometheus steals fire, which has been in the realm of the gods and gives it to mortals. So that already makes things very different. And mm. then Pandora is the payback for that. She is Ant Agathou. She's the price for, this is in exchange for this good thing that we've got, fire. So yeah, we might want to say, well, in that case, she's definitely evil because she's the price for a good thing. But when we pay for something, for example, do we consider money to be evil because it's the literal price for a good thing? Or do we consider it to be a amoral, something completely, you know, we, we, we put all our own um, uh, ethical uh, issues onto that. And I think Pandora is much more like that. You know, Hesiod says the carefree age of men comes to an end because of this, this moment. Well, the carefree age of men, Hesiod, was just men and no fire. So it was basically, like, what were you eating? Who were you talking to? You were just sitting there in your man way, gnawing on what, the leg of a deer or something, which was cold because you didn't have any fire. And you didn't even have a nice woman to talk to, to cheer you up about the fact that you were gnawing on the leg of a deer. That, of course, your life was carefree then. What did you have to care about? You were bored out of your minds, gnawing. And so, yes, I feel very strongly about this. I think Pandora has been misserved. <laughs> <laughs> and do you think, because it's so interesting hearing you talk, because, because you know, as we know, with the ancient authors, there are, you know, even with 
uh, Plato, definitely with the tragedians, uh, you know, not so much with Aristotle, I have to say, but there are, there are moments, Herodotus definitely too, when those authors are exploring the issue that they have in the contemporary world that they see around them, which is a world of absolute inequity. Uh, clearly, these are slave cultures that they're operating in. So, you know, the slaves who are described as man-footed things at this point is less than human. So that is, that, that is the sea that they're swimming in. Women, even if they're citizens, are beyond second-class citizens. So do you think that they are asking themselves moral questions as they write? Or, or do you think that there's a kind of a, a guilt or a kind of genetic memory or a, a collective memory of a time before, and I'm talking about the Bronze Age, not, I should say, that I think the Bronze Age was in any way a kind of feminist uh, wonderland. There were, I, there were definitely not uh, mother goddesses. There was definitely not a matriarchy. But you do see in some of those primary sources, uh, sections of culture where women seem to have more equity than they do by the time we get to the classical world. So, you know, women in the Bronze Age, so we're talking 3,000, 3,500 years ago, they have these things called onarto, which are portions of land. And if they have portions of land, that means they're landowners and they're taxed. So that must mean that they have disposable income. Sometimes we hear of them speaking in council. Do, do you think that actually those male writers of this, particularly this kind of 7th, 6th, 5th and 4th centuries BCE, are they, are they dealing with a, a kind of mistily remembered moment of history where things were a bit different? Or do you think they're just kind of freshly looking at the world around them and kind of asking as a, almost like a kind of intellectual parlor game, what role women might might uh, other have, otherwise have had in society? It's difficult, isn't it? I think Aristophanes is definitely doing that. We have, you know, three plays basically where Aristophanes says, what happens if women have political power? Mm -hmm. It's chaos and shenanigans and jinx ensue. And, um, you know, I think he is, he's quite, Politically, he's quite small c conservative. Um, so I think he he's just enjoying, you know, mixing things up. He's a comedian. You cannot rely on comedians to take things seriously. Believe me when I say I know which <laughs> I speak. But um, I think particularly with Euripides, there's a sense that he he writes these the most incredible roles for women in theatre at all, by the way, until, I don't know, Chekhov, Ibsen, something like that. There is no role in Shakespeare that you would want to play, I think, as a woman, um, that the female role. I mean, I guess, yeah, Glenda Jackson playing King Lear, notwithstanding. Um, th there is no role in Shakespeare you would want to play as much as you'd want to play Medea. If you're an older mm -hmm. woman, there is no role you'd want to play as much as Hecabe. There just isn't. They're incredible parts. And when we look at, at how he's presenting these women, there, there's a, it's like there's a little um, time loop between the Bronze Age where the plays are set, which mm. is you know, hundreds of years before he's writing in the fifth century BCE, and, and the world that he's reflecting, the actual world in which he lives, back at the audience who may well have been at the Dionysia, the, the drama festival held every year in Athens where his plays were first performed, which, which may well have been a purely male audience. We don't know for sure, but it seems pretty likely that given that women are so often excluded from the civic space in fifth century Athens, and given that theater is a civic, um, engagement in fifth century Athens. It seems pretty likely they're just men. The roles of women are being played by men. The play obviously has been written by a man. Mm. And mm. so when, for example, we get that big opening monologue that Medea gives in Euripides' version of her story, she says, it's terrible being a woman. And here's why, because there's, there's a mark, she says, to tell 
real gold from from the fake stuff but there isn't that on a man so you don't know whether you've got a good one or a bad one if you have got a bad one there's just nothing worse than that because he mm. can go out and do whatever he likes but we have to stay at home and you know he can fool around and we can't do that we buy a husband she's talking about the idea of a dowry of course we buy a mm. husband and we don't know what we're getting and um you know if, if things don't work out he can fool around we're we're just stuck with this and and that's the life that we've got and we're and she says to the women of the chorus, because she's a, a foreigner in their land, she says, it's, it's better for you than for me, because, you know, at least you've got your fathers and brothers and family around to protect you, but I don't have that. Um, so, you know, there's nothing worse than being a woman. And we, we hear that monologue and we go, that's fantastic. Hang on a minute. Who are you talking about? <laughs> Who did you buy with a dowry in this version of the story or any version of the story, Madea? You eloped with Jason. So this, this locked up version of you, this cloistered version of you, that's, that's the fifth century women we're talking about. Fifth century yeah. upper class women are cloistered. Obviously, if you're lower class and you don't have money, then you go out to work. We can see, mm -hmm. you know, that there are plenty of examples of it. But upper class women have this much more cloistered existence. Um, and it's like, well... Who, who's, whose life are you reflecting here? Medea doesn't have a dowry. She doesn't wait at home for a, you know, appropriate suitor to be decided by her father. She, mm. you know, his, let's remind ourselves, she essentially helps her adventurer lover to steal the golden fleece from her father. Um, she kills, and it, it is true that she doesn't have a brother to defend her interests, but in fairness, that is because she killed and dismembered him before the play <laughs> began. So cry me a river, Medea. <laughs> you, the reason you don't have a brother is for the excellent reason. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And so, it, 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 but it's this extraordinary moment, the life that she's talking about is the life that's led by the wives of the men who are watching the play. It's mm. not the life that she has led herself. And mm. you to think Euripides is an unusually sensitive observer of the human condition and that's not just true of um, for example um, uh, this sort of social situation that women live in but it's true of, of really what we might think of as really basic very intimate not known about by men biological things so at the start of the foinicide the Phoenician women Jocasta, who in this version of the story has survived the, the revelation that she had married her son, spoiler. Um, mm. She says that um, her, her son, Oedipus, had been taken from her when he was only three days old. He's exposed on the mountainside. She believes him to have died. But instead, of course, as we know, he is adopted by somebody else. And she talks about the woman who adopts Oedipus. She says, she nursed the child my labor pains produced. Now, how many men can we assume were sort of sitting there holding their wife's hand going, breathe, breathe? It, surely mm. not. You know, this was surely being done by midwives. And equally, how many men would be thinking about women producing breast milk? You know, there were wet nurses, for heaven's sake. This just isn't. And there's Euripides going, you know, the loss of a baby at three days old would be an intense physical experience for both for the woman who loses him and the woman who acquires him. And that mm. is an astonishing, and I would go so far as to say a revolutionary attitude for a man of not only his time, but frankly, of virtually any time up to, a, you know, our lifetime. It's an astonishing thing for a male writer to be thinking about.
Mm, it is. I mean, but there are, it's so interesting because there are snatches of that kind of sympathy or empathy that you also find in other authors like Homer. Because I know that, you know, we've both got a very uh, uh, cherished passage where one of the goddesses brushes an arrow off um, one of her favourite soldiers. And the, and the beautiful description is as a mother brushes a fly off the face of a sleeping baby. And just so in, in those two lines, time has collapsed and you yes. understand what you know a what that mother felt and and also the author composing how they were imagining that woman uh, see i it's so interesting hearing you talk about this because i as you know because i sort of live in the bronze age that's my happy place so i'm sort of there in my, in my head the whole time and you know if you look at the princesses of colchis where medea comes from uh, at that time these are uh, wealthy independent women and interesting that daisy mentioned georgia in the introduction you know when you go to colchis when you go to georgia and you look at the uh, palaces they lived in and you you can read some of the text describing their lives and then look at how medea is still cherished in that society today so if you go to um this kind of in incredible sort of rock and roll port of batumi on the black sea there's an enormous statue of of Medea as this dignified, uh, as I say, kind of resourceful role model for the young girls uh, of Georgia to look up to today. You know, there's no question that Medea is uh, a child killer, you know, that, that, that she shouldn't have poisoned Jason. So, so I think there's a really interesting, I just I think it's fascinating when you get these, this kind of trickle down of historical reality. And as you know, again, there's this extraordinary author called Enheduanna, who is one of the first named authors in the world, the first named female author in the story of the world. And she's a princess and uh, a, a female poet. She writes incredible works praising the goddess Anana, you know, the, the, the great war and sex goddess, who was the kind of many times uh, great grandmother of Aphrodite Venus. And if you read her, the, the poems uh, written by Anna Joanna describing her, A, they're beautiful, B, they're unbelievably feisty. So she talks about Anana as uh, yeah, riding on fire, red power, flood storm, hurricane adorned, battle planner, foe smasher. She's writing about this goddess who allows men to be women and women to be men. There's an understanding that we have uh, both male and female within us. Uh, and again, if you look at her life, you know, that is a woman who has status and standing in in court so I, I I do think I think you're you're absolutely right you know it's both kind of extraordinary sensitivity but I do think that some of these uh, stronger female characters I do think uh, that they are kernels of historical truth that almost by by accident if not by design have trickled down through some of those texts uh, and then reappear uh, it, kind of for instance in the Greek in the Greek plays but Enna Joanna you know who should be a household name, who is both kind of brilliant, uh, you know, and, and the most kind of fascinating historical character, when she is discovered and her poems are discovered in the 1920s, they occupy not even a page, half a page in the archaeologists' written notes, and people forget it. <laughs> <laughs> That's all a bit awkward and embarrassing. So, so you know, there are, we, we do have this problem of women being there very kind of definitely uh you know within with positive roles but they are then written out of history often by modern uh, 20th century 19th 20th century and, and, and often we forget that the values that we're bringing that feel to us universal simply are not you know so yes. we we find medea really troubling because she kills her children but of course in in the euripides play 
the gods endorsed that decision. We might not like it. And you almost never see it staged that way. She's almost always shown as mad at the end because it's the only way really you can, it seems, present the play to a, a, a modern audience. But that, that, that judgment on her, that moral judgment on her is not particularly, it's like, how will you do this to yourself, Medea? You know, how will you kill them? How will you ruin your own old age? Is much more of a theme of the play than, oh, but children, they deserve to live their people too which doesn't really come up. And again, you know, we might think that um, the idea of, for example, um, of Helen being the villain of the Trojan War is, mm -hmm. is completely uncontested. But of course it isn't, because in that fantastic agone in the Troodas, the Euripides play Trojan women, um, mm -hmm. she, she says to Hecabe, to the mother of Paris, who, who largely gets away without anywhere near as much responsibility, although Homer is a bit more on the ball, um, she says, you know, it, it's your fault. You had this, there was this prophecy that Paris would destroy the city of Troy, your city. And, mm. you know, you didn't expose him as a baby like you should have done. And it's mm. quite hard for a contemporary audience to go, I'm sorry, did you just berate a woman for not killing her baby child? But that, that's, not being, that's not being questioned in, in the Greek. You know, in the Greek, it's just like, yeah, why didn't you do that? And, and it's, a, it's a genuine question that's allowed to stand. Yeah. And, and you've got to look at what ha happens to Helen, you know, at the at the end of the Trojan War. So, you know, we're told very clearly she's dragged the known world in her wake. She's um, condemned hundreds, if not thousands, to, to pitiless, uh, gruesome, gruelling deaths. Hesiod, again, is talks about, you know, the known, uh, the great heroes travelling across the Mediterranean for rich, tressed Helen's sake. And yet... When we last see her in the Odyssey, she's returned back to Sparta. So, you know, the Trojan War lasted for 10 years. It took some of the heroes 10 years to get back. But there she is back in Sparta again. She's in charge. She's a queen that really doesn't seem to be many recriminations. And we, the kind of last time we hear of her, she's leading her husband Menelaus to their marital bed to sleep between purple sheets, which is both regal and a bit sexy. So there's kind of quite a lot going on there, you know, in the mention of purple. So but, long as but, you don't think of the sea snails that gave the purple, which oh, no, is the sex and that's all told for me. Like, oh. God, so, I, so, so I'm sure everybody who's listening to knows. So the, the colour purple was very, very expensive in the ancient world. Um, and there were, there were kind of lots of, you know, um, mock versions. But Wanax Purpura, as it is in the Linear B tablets, so the purple of, of kings comes from this um, sea snail called a murex, and you need about 12,000 uh, individual sea snails in order to get enough purple to dye the hem of a single garment. So, you know, that was having purple sheets, that really showed that you derived. But isn't it interesting, as I say, that Helen, in a way, she has the upper hand at she the end. She definitely of that has the upper hand because she is drugging him with with you know whatever the that dubious drug is no. that she's got from her friend Polydamna in Egypt then the yes, yes. drug is so dodgy it, it is, is so well dodgy. can I just tell you I know all about that drug for two reasons one that what you're about to say is on the record <laughs> I know, it's all being recorded I can tell you in you know only because I'm a historical researcher, two things. Yeah, but yeah. Really, it's really fascinating. So exactly as you say, there's this amazing, lively scene when we hear that Helen's back at home and she's mixing up this kind of druggy brew so that the Trojan War veterans can forget all of their sorrow. And a lot of academic ink has been spilt on this saying, you know, is it showing that she's a, a, a sorceress? But, but actually, when you analyse the terracotta pots that are left often in the graves of women from the Bronze Age, we know that they contain 
industrial quantities of laudanum, so opiates in liquid form, so opiates mixed with alcohol. So it looks like actually this was exactly one of the roles of women in that Bronze Age culture. So I'm sure Helen, the, you know, the Helen equivalents actually did that. And this is where it does get slightly dodgy. So I had the great pleasure of um, uh, uh, quite well sniffing, which sounds kind of very tame, but then also uh, imbibing freshly picked blue lotus from the Nile. And we think actually probably Helen is talking about both opiates and blue lotus. And the blue lotus, which was everywhere in the ancient uh, Egyptian world, uh, you know, in palaces in, in temples and feasts and festivals was famous uh, both as a kind of feel good drug and as an aphrodisiac. Natalie Haynes, there was definitely something going on after sniffing the blue lotus. Uh, interesting. Well. Really interesting. So, you know, those authors knew what they were doing. So yeah. exactly what you say, Helen is, you know, she's really strong um, at the end of that story. But also there's a version where she doesn't go to Troy at all. That it's Which an is idol. as old as the Troy version. In, which yeah, is incredible. Exactly. The 8th century. Yeah, so she's hanging out. She gets kind of, you know, her ship takes her to the shores of Egypt and it's a ghost, an Eidolon, that goes to Troy. So A, these stupid men are fighting over a ghost, but she is blameless. And, and that, as you say, that's not as popular a version of the story now, but my goodness, it was uh, it, it, throughout antiquity. Yeah, again, you can rely on Euripides for this one because in his play, Helen, that's the version that we see. And of course, when the Greek heroes coming home from Troy, they spend the, the entire war plays out in the same way. Um, so they spend 10 years fighting over the Erdalon, the, the image which is made out of air by the gods to cause the war. And then when they finally get their hands on her as the war ends, she disappears into the air that she's made of. So it is one of the great metaphors for the futility of war. But when the yeah. Greek heroes arrive at, at Egypt, including Menelaus, who's going to be reunited with his wife, with Helen, um, we discover that Helen is exactly as as wronged, as blamed as she might ever have been because they believed that they fought the war over her. So she has been, even though she's had this completely blameless asexual decade in the palace of Proteus, who is famously chased, brackets T-E, not E-D, um, then, you know, she, she still gets blamed for being the, the slut of the story every time. I do wonder if we're being a little bit generous, over generous to the authors of antiquity, though, because, I mean, there are some pretty shocking texts in there. Um, we talked about Hesiod. There's also this poet from the island of Morgos called Simonides, and he was really popular. Simonides, oh, yeah, he is. Street poet. Uh, anybody who's watching this, please now go and Google Simonides' poem about women, just because it will get you really fired up for the evening, because you'll be so furious, where he compares women, what is it, to dogs and foxes and any and animal he can find yeah they're cunning they're ugly they're this they're that yeah i mean it's it's one of the archetypal misogynist screeds i suppose um yeah. there's never been any shortage of misogyny i guess what bothers me about you know for example the the mistranslation of of words that are neutral in greek or morally neutral in greek um, we talked about Kalon and Kakon, but also, for example, the word for slave, which is used in the Odyssey to describe the slave women who um, Odysseus and Telemachus slaughter when, they, when Odysseus returns to Ithaca, because they mm -hmm. see them as having conspired with the suitors who've been um, trying to undermine his kingdom and, and threatening the safety of his son. But obviously these women have no agency because they are slaves. So they can't just say to these men, oh, you know, get off and expect to be understood and heard that they're, they're slaves. Um, 
And in the Greek, the word is slave and it's, and the female word for the, the female and plural word for the is placed before it. And that's how we should read it. And indeed, if you read Emily Wilson's excellent translation, that is how you'll read it. But if you read virtually any translation before that, you'll get it um, described, they'll, they'll be described as sluts, slattens, harlots, whores, um, you know, any quantity of, of overwritten modern misogyny. I say modern, I mean often 19th and 20th century in order to, to justify this behavior of a Greek hero who obviously these men have a big boy crush on. And it's like, I, I get your big boy crush, but stop mm -hmm. monstering the women, God damn it. This just is annoying, quite aside from anything else. It's bad translation and you know what makes me angry. I'm like Harrison Ford <laughs> in the future. It falls apart <laughs> Search. Um, so yeah, no, it's it is really irritating. It's like there's there's plenty of misogyny to go around in the ancient world. We don't need to add in our own later versions of misogyny. And so you do still get people responding really negatively occasionally, and not not in large quantities. When when you try and take that modern prejudice away, and so you get the occasional review again. Well, how dare this person retell the Odyssey? How dare they rewrite Homer? It's like, dude, I don't know which version you've been reading, but not the Greek. Yeah, completely. Do you, do you think, I mean, oh my gosh, I'd love this so much if this was true, but I fear it's not going to be. The one, I, I'm so upset by Aristotle, because Aristotle really is smart, but what Aristotle has to say about women is so unbelievably damaging, because as you know, quite a lot of his works were sort of taken as, uh, as, as canon and as medical texts that were referred to right up into the 19th century. And he talks about women as kind of oozing leaky creatures and this notion that, you know, a, a woman's evil can actually physically turn a glass dark if she looks at you, if she tries to kind of pierce you with her lust. I, I, I have to say, I haven't tackled Aristotle to retranslate, but do you, do you think he's as horrific as as uh, he seems to be or you, you say know, that but I actually can turn a glass dark with my lust so you know <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm fine with that that seems to me just factual um yeah Edith Hall is brilliant on Aristotle she wrote a very good book called Aristotle's Way yeah. Professor Edith Hall obviously of uh, King's College London um and her argument is that Aristotle was so clever and so um interested in inquiry that even though he is wholly mistaken on the subject of women and he is about other things I mean he's really bad on on human biology, you don't ever want to go, you want to go to Aristotle for analysis of, of plays or politics. You do not want to go to him for medical advice because although he is absolutely fascinated mm -hmm. by animals and plants and science in general, I mean, he's basically the inventor of, of the biological sciences. Um, he still thinks there are, for example, humors and stuff like that. Do not go to Aristotle for medical advice is my suggestion mm -hmm. to you. But mm -hmm. Edith's argument is that, you know, he would have refined his position if he'd had if he'd had the opportunity to, that had he been faced with intelligent, educated women um, who would debate with him, he would have realized the error of his ways. I, you know, you have to hope that that's true um, because mm. he is a really brilliant thinker, but yes, he's an advocate of slavery and he's an advocate of the inferiority of women. And those two things have been incredibly damaging in um, modern cultures, which have taken Aristotle as their sort of starting philosophical point. And that's yeah. the thing that we have to bear in mind is that although there are Incred those incredible moments where time just seems to collapse. We're a really long way away from how people thought and what they knew. And so Aristotle is by no means anything other than you know, one of the most intelligent people who ever lived. But that doesn't mean he's right about everything because there's a limit to how much material he has. You know, and this is true generally, I think, of, of belief systems that belong to such a distant time in the past. You know, I, I always say to people, I think, it's not, it's, not an, 
it's not a stupid idea to think that the god Poseidon can create earthquakes because how would you ever know about tectonic plates? How could you possibly mm. know that beneath mm. the, the land and the sea are separate mm. things which move against you? You couldn't possibly make that, that guess. So, you know, the, the god of the sea is angry and smashes his trident against the floor of the sea is, is not a stupid idea. It may not be entirely rational, but it's also not dumb. Yes, yeah, I t absolutely. And what they can totally understand is that we are within nature, we're not external to it. I mean, I, just the number of times I've heard COVID briefings you know, with Boris, for example, talking about, you know, what this is what we have to do in the face of nature, as if somehow we yeah. as humans are not part of it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, you know, the Greeks, wow, they, they got that to the power of X, you know, the, the, the way that they understand the world. And it's, I think, I mean, you, you know, you're right. It wouldn't be, I'm just, I'll tell you what I was just thinking about Aristotle. What an amazing riff it would be to put Aristotle together with Hypatia, who's also a philosopher and uh, mathematician and scientist. Astronomer, from, yeah, amazing. Astronomer. Amazing from Alexandria, you know, they're separated by about 700, 800 years. But Hypatia, who was super smart as a woman, and then because she is a woman and she gets caught up in the kind of politics of that period in Alexandria, suffers the most horrific death. And she's basically attacked by a religious mob um, and she's flayed alive with a straka, either with pottery sherds or with um, oyster oh, shells yeah. and, and dismembered. I mean, you know, she is a real woman and her end is appalling. But actually, she would have been a match for Aristotle if only they lived at the, you know at the same points in antiquity. That would have been quite quite a meeting of minds, wouldn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And that's the thing that you kind of have to bear in mind is that it's really, it's it's really easy to see ancient Greece or ancient Rome yeah. as as in themselves a single time. But actually, yeah. of course, the ancient Greek civilization is two thousand years old. You know the the distance between Hypatia. And Aristotle, it's like the distance between us and what, Chaucer? I mean, it's a really, really yes. long way. So it is important to bear in mind that there are some changes in those societies across yes. hundreds of years. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And that, yeah, but, but, but what I find both sort of, you know, enlightening and depressing is that the treatment of women, it, it, it absolutely, you know, it's, it's neither cyclical, cyclical nor linear, but it goes in these kind of waves. So you have, you know, incredible characters like Pujahepa, who's the queen of the Hittites, again, back in the Bronze Age, you know, really uh, sure of herself. She writes the most fantastically kind of, uh, kind of tick off letters to Ramesses the Great, Ramesses II, who is the most powerful man in the world at the time. And she thinks that he hasn't given enough dowry for one of her daughters who's going off to be married. And she sort of sends in this letter saying, you know, if you say you have nothing, the sun god has nothing. And basically, you know, pull, your, pull yourself together and send me back some, some more gold, which actually doesn't arrive. But you have her in the Bronze Age, you know, around you know, 1200 BCE. And then again, as you're saying, kind of separated by eons of, of time, Theodora in Constantinople. So we're talking about the sixth century AD, who is very similar in the way that she deals with kind of recalcitrant uh, leaders elsewhere in Egypt and sort of talks about how weak they're being. And, you know, as you know, I'm a great fan of, of both Helen and of Theodora, who is a real woman who 
tries to put in all kinds of social reforms as soon as she has power as a Byzantine empress. And she sets up a safe house for prostitutes and for single women, uh, penalties for rape and infanticide and pimping are increased uh, on her watch. So, so it is really interesting how you, as I said, you get these kinds of nuclear waves a time when women, we see women to have real impact and effect in the world, but it is not consistent. You know, there does seem to have to be a kind of particular set of circumstances that allows that to happen. But getting, I wonder if we should sort of involve all the amazing people who are with us who are sending extremely interesting questions. Um, are they? I can't uh, see them. Tell me what they say. Yeah, I can. I can choose. Aha, the, power, the power, the power of so, so a, a nice simple one to start with. So this is from Antonin. He says he's particularly interested in modern retellings of ancient myths. So, and it, cleverly, he says, like Mike Bartlett's TV series, Dr. Foster, After Medea, Camilla Shamsi's Home Fire, Antigone and Madeline Miller's Circe. Why has it taken so long for these ancient texts to become mainstream again? Well, why, why is classics having a moment? Um, I think the short answer is because publishers have realised that people will buy them and read them. For the longest time, there was a sort of belief in publishing, A, that men didn't read books written by women, uh, B, that men didn't read fiction, C, that classics was a sort of preserve of the elite men, and therefore, mm. you know, this leads you to the inexorable conclusion that no one is going to read um, classic stories retold by women unless they're focused on elite men, which, for example, Mary Reno's books largely are you know they tell the story of Theseus or indeed Simonides or um you know and so those but those entirely subvert this notion because you know men re read Mary Reno in, in their hundreds of thousands I should think you know it's she's always the person the writer that um that people talk about as having introduced them to the stories of Greek myth or you know time without number you get you get people talking to you about her but the idea I think that we might focus the story on women that that's just because suddenly you know we're allowed we were all waiting we were, we've all been reading this stuff you know and and then you know people kind of go oh okay well once madeline had written uh, the song of achilles which obviously made a few furious people go wait a minute gay sex in ancient greece i, I don't know what to say to you mate don't look at any vase paintings you're gonna be absolutely appalled <laughs> like, yeah, boy should you never read plato that's my suggestion to you um, but once they'd got past the absolute sheer and wanton horror of the notion that men might find other men sexually attractive, um, then I think that, that, you know, it sold zillions of copies in the US and the UK and all over the world. And then obviously yeah, there, there's been, it, it, opened, it opened doors that meant that, you know, women were suddenly allowed to retell these stories. I, the first novel I wrote was a modern retelling of, uh, of a Greek myth. So it was set in the modern world, the Amber Fury. Um, and I'm not sure it would have been possible for me to write A Thousand Ships at that point. You know, she no. published in, in 2014 and Ships was published in 2019. And the, the climate had simply changed in that. Mm. So, you know, yeah. I think that readers came out of the, of the shadows and bought the books. And that's what made the mm. difference. Publishers mm. are, are not psychic, but equally, they're not stupid if people are buying books. Mm. Publish the books. Mm. 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 Absolutely. I mean, you're so, you're so right, because when I was writing that, that, non-fiction book about Helen which I think came out in 2003 I was told by a number of my um, academic colleagues that it was a very fluffy subject and, yes. and 
you know, that I would be really damaging my academic reputation by dealing with such a fluffy subject as Helen, which gave me, put a certain degree of fire in my belly, I have to say, to insist to do. But, but you know, you are right, They're, you know, that, 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 that again, that sort of sea that we're swimming in has definitely changed. I've just got to stand up for Mary Renault, you know, you have to pronounce her Renault, not Renault. Oh, I didn't you know, know that. No, I didn't. Bonus fact. Bonus fact, she and why she insisted on that is because uh, when she was, uh, uh, you know, she, she, as you know, she was a nurse during World War Two. And it was when Hitler was using Renault cars and she didn't want to be associated with the cars that Hitler was using. So she she styled herself Renault. So Fair there enough. we are. Now, I know. Fun fact. And I do like the fact that she talks about having partyish times. But but yes, you know, the, it, thank goodness it's changed and that your books are doing so fabulously well, along with Madeline's and, and Camilla's. So somebody is um, asking, in, is the association, which is Pandora, because I know that you're talking about Pandora, is the association of Pandora with the acquisition of fire a pre-shadowing of women being seen in the realm of the kitchen? Question mark exclamation mark um i think probably fire is outdoors for a lot for a longish time before it's indoors so i'm gonna have to say no um yes yeah i don't think so the 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 cyclops polyphemus has fire in um in the odyssey for example so i think the notion that fire is domestic is okay but the notion that women would be associated with the fire um it's much harder to delineate women's roles anyway in a, a society which has um domestic servitude um, mm. So if, if there is any task that women are associated with, it's not cooking, it's always weaving. 100% of the time it's yeah. weaving. Um, yeah. And that's in Bronze Age uh, stories. That's what we find women doing. And that will run right the way through until, you know, the, the Roman Empire, when Augustus is talking mm -hmm. about his wife, Livia, and how respectable she is um, uh, because she, she stays at home and weaves all day. But yeah, yeah right. exactly. Exactly. Loom weights. I think we find so many bloody loom weights in archaeological digs. You just think... They are tokens of oppression. I don't. I don't want to find another another loom weight. Actually, I tell you what, weaving and also interesting water carrying is that something that women consistently yeah. do, and we we see that in the um, uh, the, the evidence of the skeletal evidence of human remains that women often have these really compacted necks because they're carrying water on their heads. And and again, what's interesting is the literary sources talk about this, but they always talk about the fact that when women went to the well or to the spring, that was their chance to to talk and to exchange, I, not not just gossip, but ideas. And I think that was definitely a kind of a, a historical reality. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so somebody's also saying, I think this was Laura Pope said, although there are very slim pickings, interesting question this, who do you think is the most revered woman in antiquity? Interesting. Uh, real or mythological? I think it's open. In terms of real, I suppose it's probably, in, for the Greeks, is, is it Aspasia? I mean, how mad is that? But Aspasia, who yeah. is, um, you know, Pericles, who is the great statesman of fifth century Athens, um, delivers this incredible funeral speech, which many of us were thinking about last year in, um, in bleak times, at the mm. end of the first year of the Peloponnesian War, which begins in 431 BCE. Um, at the end of that first year, they have plague, because what's happened is that the um, people who live in sort of around Athens in the area of Attica have been drawn inside the city walls because the, the area has been invaded by um, other Greeks, by Spartans and their allies. Um, and so there are people who are overcrowded and, you know, as we might expect, then plague arises um, and the death toll is enormous. Uh, Pericles himself will go on to die of plague, but he delivers this funeral speech um, 
which is told to us by or invented by, because ancient history is not quite like modern history, um, mm -hmm. by Thucydides, the fifth century historian. And in that, he says, right towards the end, he's delivered this incredible, you know, oration. Um, and right towards the end, he says, on the subject of women, um, you know, it's the, the best thing for women to, is to, that they shouldn't be spoken about either in praise or blame. And it's like, so that's slightly worse than Victorian women who could be you know, seen but not heard like children. Um, but they, they can't be <laughs> spoken about at all. They should basically yes. not exist. And so it's a source of enormous delight to me uh, that Pericles shacks up with Aspasia, the most notorious woman of fifth century Athens <laughs> about whom everybody talks. So uh, Aristophanes writes jokes about her. Um, yeah, she's the only real woman, I think I'm right to say, um, like historical woman mentioned in Plato, the whole of Plato, the entire surviving work of Plato. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so she, she's and he says that, Sorry, he says that um, she's Socrates' tutor, doesn't she? It doesn't, yeah. uh, Plato, so, you know. So so she taught him rhetoric. That's how rhetoric. Socrates gets so good at talking is because he's got a tutor. Yeah. So, you know, and, and she's in the work of, I think, Xenophon as well. So, you know, this incredible, obviously very bright, woman who could hold her own amongst these, you know, super brains of any time, let alone, you know, this particular time. Um, you know, that this, that sh their relationship is, is obviously remarkable. And mm. Heracles dies having, you know, having left his Athenian citizen wife in order to shack up with Aspasia in what we would call perhaps a common law marriage. But what we mean mm. is they lived together in sin just before sin yeah. had been invented. Um, yeah. And, uh, and, and his children by Aspasia are made citizens. There's almost no examples of this happening. It's so rare. Mm. The Athenians guard their citizenship really tightly, but for, mm. for the sake of, of the memory of Pericles and perhaps you know, also because of the esteem in which Aspasia is held, who knows? Yeah, the jokes that Aristophanes makes about her are always really you know, saucy, but I've, I've made this comparison many times on stage and I make no apology for it. Trying to work out who a real person is when all you have is jokes in Aristophanes is like mm. trying to identify who Barbara Streisand is. If the only piece of material you had 2000 years after she'd been alive is the South Park episode, Mecha Streisand, where giant robot Barbara Streisand tries to destroy South Park. And we would be sitting there in two and a half thousand years ago. So was she like robotic? Is, was she was she famously destructive? <laughs> we tried to work out who Barbara Streisand was, and we wouldn't get anywhere near it. <laughs> so we wouldn't have a joke because that's how jokes work. So, uh, what I love, I suppose, about Aspasia is that she's so opaque to us, but she obviously was this incredibly, you know, influential character. But you know, who knows who is the most esteemed and respected woman in the ancient world? There are there are, contrary to popular belief, so very many to choose from. Yes. I mean, I, but again, this is slightly controversial, but I do think, I mean, I do, I, you know, it was a, it was a grim time uh, for women in the, the classical period. So again, we're talking around kind of 2,500, 2,400 years ago. I do think we need to look a bit more at the role of women um, in re religion and ritual. And you've got to think, you know, ancient Greek religion, there is no separate word for religion. Gods and goddesses and demigods and spirits are everywhere and in everything. And women were often thought to be the, the, the kind of occupants of society who had to keep those gods on side and were deeply involved in rituals. So that's not just kind of going and putting church flowers on the altar on, a, on you know, on a Saturday night or Saturday afternoon. Um, and a lot of that activity happens at night. Uh, and I just think I just think there's a there's a whole kind of history of the nighttime life, ritual life of places like Athens, where women, I think, were much more present than absent. You know, we know that they were often the keepers of the keys of temples and temples were basically banks in the ancient yes. world. 
And that is, you know, so to be the bank manager of the Parthenon, for instance, you know, that is quite that is, that is quite a good job to have. So, so I, I think, as you said before, I think we need to look very carefully at the sources because they've been selected and then uh, written about in a very particular way. Uh, so we've got some fantastic questions. So two things. Somebody says Sappho, just Sappho. Yeah, perfectly reasonable. The 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 10th muse. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I agree. She is wonderful. You know, I love her. I wish we yeah. had more of her. It kills me. Nine books of lyric poetry she wrote and we've got some three poems and some fragments. It's uh, yeah. It's insufficient. Yeah. <laughs> It is. And she, I mean, again, you've heard me say this before, Natalie, but my God, Sappho, I would teach Sappho in every school. The fact that she writes about first love or just love. So yeah. extraordinary. She talks about the fire creeping under your skin. and the, Yeah, the fact love as a physical condition. Yes, totally. And that it's bittersweet. And I do, it's so helpful to read her poems because you realise you're not being an idiot that actually you know this is something that that young women and girls have been going through for at least 26 centuries and probably uh longer so i'm just looking at the i, I this is from pam bennett i so enjoyed the silence of the girls by pat barker despite all the gore it stayed resonating with me do you think this is a positive addition to the tales of the trojan war silence uh, of the girls yeah why not yeah. it's a couple of years since i read it so i don't feel what is it um it's not at the forefront of my mind currently uh, because obviously i've had to process quite a lot of books since then um but yeah i reviewed it for somebody at the time it came out but i've forgotten who the spectator the new statesman i don't remember so somebody is also saying they're they're being very sweet and they're saying they love your shows and they Thank you know you. they yeah love them love them and they love our books and um which uh, translation of uh, The Odyssey and the Iliad would you recommend? And I think The Odyssey, probably Emily Wilson? Emily Wilson all day long for The Odyssey. Um, I flip between uh, Caroline Alexander and Robert Fagels for The Iliad. Yes. Um, yes. Emily is doing The Iliad next, I think. Uh, that's what she's yes. working on. But uh, I'm, we're going to have to wait for her to finish hers. So, yes, I flit around. I'm extremely... Um, unhelpful people always come to me for translations and the answer is I don't use them in anything like a useful way and often the only version I have is the one from when I was an undergraduate so you know it's it's 20 years out of date um, so yes I'm a terrible person to ask ask a librarian or a bookseller they are on top of things okay so Maura Welsh says hi is misogyny just a fact of life whether it's ancient or modern women do females just have to live with it question mark no we do not no we do not no we do not we need to shove them down wells like the Spartans. Um, we shouldn't shove misogynists down wells. It's illegal. No. <laughs> we should. It's, yeah, we should shove misogyny. So it's like you don't. You know. Yeah. You treat right. them, we'll we'll you shove know. an abstract <laughs> noun down a well. I'm happy yeah. with that. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And uh, which woman from ancient times would you want to have dinner with? This is from Fabienne. Oh Natalie. God, all of them. Can I not have dinner with all the women of ancient times? How am I supposed to, am I fictional, real? I don't know. Yes, Hypatia, because yep. I think we'd be able to talk about maths and I really like maths. Um, yes. And, you know, and yes, Aspasia, obviously, because then we could talk about art and rhetoric and that would be really interesting. And, you know, yes, Livia, because I want to know if she actually poisoned anybody or if she was just cruelly misrepresented. Agrippina the Younger, the greatest Roman emperor the Romans never had, who would have been far better at ruling the empire than her idiot son Nero. Um, mm. And, you know, the list is as long as your proverbial arm. I want to talk to, you know, Claudia Severa, whose handwriting is, is uh, was found at Hadrian's Wall, inviting her sister for dinner, the old, oldest example of a woman's handwriting found in the UK. Um, you know, who, who doesn't want to talk to all these women? Idiots is who. 
Uh, Hypatia, do you know, famously, she was supposed to, she has this rather kind of drippy scholar who was mad about her. And she's supposed to have waved her menstrual rag at him and said, look, this is what, you know, if you get into bed with me, literally, this is what you're getting into bed with. You're getting into yeah, bed. I don't want her to do that at dinner. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> it's not just the vegetarian in me, but generally, I would rather that didn't happen. I think that, does that happen in the first series, of the first episode, maybe of Orange is the New Black? Have I imagined yeah. that? Does Kate Melbourne <laughs> give um, Piper a... a tampon in a sandwich I feel like that happens I don't I'm sorry everybody some of you are probably eating I feel terrible for the fact that this has just happened this is worse than when I said we should push people down a well what why do you and we've got like two minutes we've got 50 questions to get through so I think we might uh, have to have a full quick fire a full <laughs> but um do you I mean just why why are we why are we all collectively through technology sitting and talking about this at all why does it matter you know why do why why apart from interest why does it matter that we engage with these characters, either real or imagined, from a very, very distant past? Because it's all our past. I feel very strongly about this, as you know. The ancient world belongs to all of us. It doesn't just belong to the 7% of people who go to fee-paying schools. It's all our history. This is all our cultural history. And if the only version of stories you ever see are versions where men have adventures and women sit at home or occasionally go, oh, but be careful, uh, which is basically all action films that I love from the 90s, um, that's kind of what I grew up on. It took me longer than I would have liked it to, to go, well, I could just put women at the center of these stories. You know, well, why yeah. wouldn't I? And it's, it's not good enough. It's just not good enough. And, you know, men deserve the chance to empathize with female characters. Um, boys reading when they're young deserve the chance to empathize with characters, not just to see, you know, a leading character who looks and sounds like them. And women deserve the chance to see themselves as the, the you know, agents of their own, fortune not the you know not being in a coma and waiting for a prince to come and wake you up mm -hmm. that's not mm -hmm. good enough it's not good enough and there are these incredible stories about women that have existed for millennia and i don't understand why we haven't been telling them as much as we should have been but we're going to tell them now because now i'm here hurrah you are are you by any chance a broadcaster natalie because you just <laughs> a question on the next clock of 2030 and we have we've now got uh, a huge number 60 questions waiting to be asked so daisy i think is going to come back on because we've, we've reached the end of our time but daisy i think we might have to do another session so that we can deal with at least 55 of the 60 questions that uh, people want to ask us so so you know have us have us back if you'd if you'd like to